Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading. All right, then, explorers, take a deep breath. Strap yourself in. We are travelling all around the universe in about half an hour. Then I'll get you home safe and sound. Don't worry, it's a brand new episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name's Dan. Thank you so much for listening. And this week we are doing a lot of exploring. We are heading out to space learning about a mission to Mars that didn't turn out exactly as planned, but it helped future missions become much better. We'll hear more with Ed Turner from the National Space Centre. Yeah, so it was Christmas Day, actually. So everyone's getting very, very excited on Christmas Day. But scientists, instead of being at home with their families, were at various places around the country waiting for the first signal back from Beagle 2. And it never came, unfortunately. They waited and they waited and they waited. But I think about two months went by and they finally said, something's happened to Beagle 2. Officially, we've got to call it there. The mission was a failure, as far as we were aware. Also, it's almost Christmas right now. So we'll take a look at some of the science behind what you love about the big day. Santa's elves have been able to put their feet up, as we've invested in a new 3D printer that means many of the toy components can be produced at the touch of a button. At the moment, Santa's sticking to standard components, but in the future, he hopes to be able to deliver mass customization. Imagine a toy train with your name on the side, or a toy dog exactly like your real pet. The possibilities are endless. And I've got your questions to answer. This week, they're on strange blue lights and... Weather will ever move. Not you from your home, but us as the human race. It's all coming up in a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. Let's kick things off with your science in the news. The skull of a colossal sea monster has been found in the cliffs of Dorset's Jurassic Coast in the south of the UK. The skull belongs to a pliosaur, a ferocious marine reptile that terrorised the oceans about 150 million years ago. Uh, It's two metres long, this fossil. It's one of the most complete specimens of its type ever discovered, and it's giving some new insights into this ancient predator. How amazing is it that experts and scientists and archaeologists are always digging in the ground and we're still finding amazing specimens of animals from millions and millions of years ago which is changing what we know about the creatures and we'll still travel back through time for this one because the last meal of a 75 million year old tyrannosaur has been revealed by scientists it's kind of gross its last meal was two baby dinosaurs researchers say that the animal was kept in pristine condition and not just the animal but the creatures that it ate too and it shines new light on how these predators lived. This particular gorgosaur was around seven years old, which is about a teenager in dinosaur terms. It weighed 330 kilograms when it died. It was about the tenth of the weight of a fully grown adult. Uh, in it, you can see the limbs of two bird-like dinosaurs. 
which were just visible in the stomach beneath its rib cage. The scientists who have discovered this say that we now know that these teenage dinosaurs hunted small young dinosaurs, which we didn't really know before. So we've shown and we've seen how their diet changes because of the fossils that we're finding. What a brilliant discovery. And let's head into space, last science in the week. Our science... A scientific, in- instru- a scientific instrument built in Wales will lead the search for life on Mars soon. ENFIS, which means rainbow in Welsh, is an infrared spectrometer and it's being assembled at Aberystwyth University in Wales. It will be fitted to the European Space Agency's Rosalind Franklin rover, which will launch to Mars in about 2028. And this instrument will work alongside the robot's other systems to spot rocks that, that you can drill in to test for ancient life so it's a brilliant brilliant thing that this is happening uh, here in the UK where I am and that people from all around the world are coming together to look for different signs of life in other parts of the universe Let's check in with Benny and Mal then, shall we? Benny and Mal are our favourite microbe friends. Microbes are little thing that live in your guts, but Benny and Mal, they go on big adventures and they're looking at demanding dilemmas, ethical dilemmas, which is a difficult choice about the right thing to do. We've had a listen to a lot of different dilemmas over the last couple of months, and this week it's all about the use of fluoride in water. Benny and Mal's Demanding Dilemmas, with support from Nuffield Council on Bioethics. All right, Benny and Mal here. Yeah. We're teasing out a few demanding dilemmas for you. Big word, isn't it? Dilemma. It just means having a difficult choice to make. You choose. Like if you're allowed a special birthday outing trying to decide whether to have a bowling party or a swimming party. Something like that. Good example, Mal. I'd go for swimming. And you might not know this, but an ethical dilemma is a difficult choice about the right thing to do. Here's an ethical dilemma for you. If you found a crisp £10 note on the ground and no one else was around, would it be okay to keep it? And here's where it gets really interesting. Some ethical dilemmas are about difficult choices we have to make about how we use science. You choose. Dilemmas about science. Not sure I get what you mean there. Science is all around us. It helps us do a massive amount of stuff. But just because we can do some things, well, doesn't mean we should. Yeah, like, we could keep that £10 note, but should we? You choose! I see that sound effect is still with us, Mal. Let's talk about fluoride in the water. Around 10% of the water we use in the UK contains fluoride. First question, what's that? In some areas, it's a naturally occurring mineral. In others, well, it's put there by scientists. Yuck. So when I'm having a lovely cold glass of water, I'm actually having a lovely cold glass of chemicals. I'm not too happy about that. Why do they want to put chemicals in the water? Well, there is a reason. Fluoride has been shown to improve dental health. For decades, people in areas with fluoride in the water have had less fillings than those in areas without. It strengthens the enamel. That's the tough coating on your teeth. How do we know that people aren't just getting fewer fillings because they're brushing their teeth more often? Straight away, you're raising a good point. 
some scientists argue that the evidence, whilst there, just isn't good enough for adding fluoride. They also point out that toothpaste and dental health are just better in many places. And it seems pretty drastic putting it in all the water in some areas. That means if you live in one of them areas, you don't even have a choice about it. Maybe I like having fillings. Clearly that's bonkers. Putting it in all the water is a good way of making sure no one is left out. You raise another good point, though. Some people certainly think that essential things like water shouldn't be changed on purpose, unless there really isn't an alternative to prevent serious harm. Yeah, and are a few fillings really that bad? Worth tinkering around with the water supply for? I'm really not convinced about all this fluoride swishing about. Well, we are talking about one part of fluoride per million million parts of water, so it's not very much. But fluoride can be harmful in larger doses, and so having scientists checking and monitoring the supplies is a vital part of the process. So, as you can see, it's a right old dilemma. A demanding dilemma. A positive brain-busting bioethical bamboozler. I wonder which side you'll agree with. You choose. Benny and Mal's Demanding Dilemmas, with support from Nuffield Council on Bioethics. More demanding dilemmas next week on the show. Right now, let's do the thing that I love the most about chatting and exploring with you every week, and that's answering your questions. If you ever have anything science that you want answered on the podcast, make sure you leave it as a voice note for me on the free Fun Kids app or at funkidslive.com. Then I can play it out, I can say hello, and uh, you are the star of our podcast. Now, Jesse has sent an email to me. Jesse wants to know, will we ever be able to live on another planet? It's a bit worrying, really. If you think about what humans have done to our planet, that maybe the only option we have is to try and live somewhere else. And the answer is maybe, in time. Some scientists think different things about this. Some say that we won't ever colonise another planet. Others say the only way for humans to survive as a species is to do just that. The really tricky thing is that planet Earth is so perfectly suited to life as we know it which is why we're having trouble finding other forms of life in the world, because Earth has everything that you need, and we're not sure if other planets do. We need an atmosphere like Earth. We need water. We need food. We need to be able to make more food and more oxygen to keep life going. Experts are looking at Mars, right? We heard about that earlier on in the show. Mars is the fourth planet from the sun, and its temperature isn't too different from here on Earth. The gravity isn't too strong, so we wouldn't be squashed or immediately scorched. And we would need to make the right homes. There's no oxygen to breathe on Mars. So we'd probably need to make big domes or pods with air that we could breathe, like something from a sci-fi movie. Recently, though, scientists have found ice frozen on Mars. And that points towards an idea that maybe there is water on there that we could make more water with and we could live on. So perhaps that we'll be able to move Jesse, but... Not just yet. Don't worry about it. Uh, Let's get another question. This one is from Lucy, who is 10 years old. Really interesting and and a bit more closer to home, really, than maybe moving to Mars. This is a problem that you might have. Lucy wants to know, if you're on a screen in bed, why does it make it harder to sleep after you've looked at your phone or something? Well, some scientists think it's to do with blue light. The blue light that your screen gives off. In the light, there is blue light waves there. And... When you're scrolling, it stimulates the part of your brain which makes melatonin. Melatonin is a hormone that controls your sleep cycle. 
it tells you when to wake up and when to go to bed. If that's being stimulated, it's kind of throwing it out of control. You're not sure if it's time to sleep yet. That's why experts say that, well, adults need about eight hours of sleep a night because it sets that melatonin cycle up normally. It makes it consistent. And looking at your phone in bed, it's throwing that all out of whack because you're getting more melatonin. That's what some experts think. But a lot of phones now have a blue light filter, which should stop it. But you still sometimes can't fall asleep. Experts think it's simply because you're switched on, right? When you're scrolling online, when you're flicking, flicking, thricking through, it it wakes your brain up and it makes you more alert, which makes it harder to switch off, Lucy. Thank you very much for the question. Uh, I loved both of those, travelling all around the universe and to your bed to look at your phone. Uh, We will have more questions. Hello, everyone. I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading. Questions next week. If you have something you really want answered on the podcast, please do leave it as a voice note for me on the free Fun Kids app or at funkidslive.com. Let's check in with this week's Dangerous Dan, where we look at some of the most mean, weird and strange things in the universe. Today we're headed into space to take a look at the most energetic event in the universe. Now across the universe, scientists have spotted strange gamma ray bursts that happen. These are enormous explosions that shoot gamma rays all around. A gamma ray is a type of electromagnetic radiation. It's a wave of electromagnetism, and the wave causes a type of radiation which can make living cells completely break down and die because it's such a force of energy. Gamma ray bursts are thought to be caused by massive stars collapsing or maybe even black holes merging. Both of those events, very simply, they smash and shoot out a huge amount of energy nearby. And when these huge events happen, they release a focused beam of gamma radiation into space. It's like something from Doctor Who. I mean, imagine a villain from a sci-fi movie, right? With a huge laser shooting a beam of violent energy out. That's what scientists kind of think this looks like. If one were to happen near Earth, it would have devastating effects to our planet's life. The energy would completely terrorise everything down here. Fortunately, experts don't think there's anything nearby that could cause a gamma ray burst. But these bursts, check this out, they release more energy in just a few seconds than our sun does in its entire lifetime. That's how powerful and how deadly these mysterious gamma ray bursts are. And it's why these magical, monstrous gamma ray bursts go straight onto our dangerous stand list. Alright then, this episode is being released on the 16th of December, which means if you are listening on the day... You've got nine sleeps to go. Nine sleeps until the big one. Christmas is almost here. So let's learn about the science of Christmas with our mate Santa Mori. With so many kids around the world and so many presents to deliver, transportation can be a bit tricky for Santa. So what does he do when things go wrong? And what's the science behind the sleigh? Santa Mori Science of Christmas. Hello, Santa Mori here. You know, the one in charge of all the science and technology here at the North Pole. With so many children around the world and so many presents to deliver, transportation can be a totally tricky task. What happens when something goes wrong? What happens if Santa can't find the right present for the right kid when he lands on the roof? 
After all, remember, he only has 130 microseconds per each household. Well, in the old days, if we forgot a present, Santa would have to turn the sleigh around and go back to the North Pole to collect it. As you can imagine, this took up a lot of time and made the reindeers very tired indeed. But today, there is no reason to worry. Santa's sleigh is fitted with the most modern 3D printers, and a new toy can quickly and easily be made on the way. Santa can communicate with the workshop over the internet, and his team of engineering elves can put the pattern together in no time. In fact, Santa's elves have been able to put their feet up, as we've invested in a new 3D printer that means many of the toy components can be produced at the touch of a button. At the moment, Santa's sticking to standard components, but in the future, he hopes to be able to deliver mass customization. Imagine a toy train with your name on the side, or a toy dog exactly like your real pet. The possibilities are endless. Another problem with transporting gifts over the distances Santa has to travel is the variation in temperature. That's a big challenge, especially for all of those chocolates that have to be stuffed in stockings. Santa's got to stop them from freezing in Moscow and melting in Melbourne. To get around this hot potato of a problem, we've added a special compartment to the sleigh that's insulated with phase change materials to maintain a steady temperature. Some toys are very delicate too. We had a big rush on China tea sets one year and because they weren't packed properly, well, let's just say a few tea parties had to be cancelled. Now, other gifts like books and electrical items need to be kept dry. The elves and I are always researching new packing materials. We found some made from plant waste that are light and sustainable, and the beauty is that they are very waterproof too, which is handy when you're wrangling with wintry weather. Santa Maury's Science of Christmas, with support from the Institute of Physics, the Royal Aeronautical Society, and the Institution of Engineering and Technology. Find out more at funkidslive.com slash Christmas. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly, and we're learning about a very strange mission to Mars today, something called Beagle 2. Now, Ed Turner is from the National Space Centre and can tell us more. Ed, thank you so much for being there. Now, Beagle 1 was a very important vessel that did a lot and discovered a lot, but wasn't quite into space. Just remind us about Beagle 1 before we get to Beagle 2. Yes, it was quite far from getting all the way into space. Uh, It was actually a sailing ship, so it was the HMS Beagle that took... Uh, Charles Darwin around on his round-the-world trip on part of where he discovered the theory of evolution, where he came up with the theory of evolution. So that's very inspirational when scientists want to head out to space and see what's happening around there. So just tell us about the very start of Beagle 2, because I know things went wrong in the mission that we'll talk about, but let's just remind us of the beginning of the whole thing. Where did that idea come from? So uh, Beagle 2 was sort of a piggybacking mission on uh, another spacecraft that was already under work. So the European Space Agency came up with something called Mars Express, which is currently still around Mars, still orbiting around Mars. Uh, And they wanted to send out this orbiter. It's called the Mars Express because it was using a specific transfer window that would get it to Mars in about six months rather than, than about nine months, which is how long it usually takes. And a man by the name of Colin Pillinger, he decided 
there is a critical component of this mission missing. Uh, we need a lander. We need we need to land on Mars. What's the point in going there if we don't land on it, right? So he created Beagle 2, or the idea of Beagle 2. And he called it Beagle 2 after HMS Beagle because he didn't like acronyms. He didn't want to kind of spend time working out this really fancy acronym like lots of other space missions. So he just went, we're going to call it Beagle. We're going to call it Beagle 2. That will suit us. The mission is, is, is very strange from what I can read about it. And that's why you're here, because you're, you, you know everything. So what's the general idea for Beagle 2 when hopefully it, it arrives and lands on Mars? To start with, Beagle 2 was a very ambitious mission to kind of put into perspective the Perseverance rover, which is the most recent NASA rover to be sent there, cost about $3 billion overall. Beagle 2 cost about £50 million, so a lot less, and it was working on a very, very small mass budget of only uh, a few tens of kilograms, so very, very light and doesn't cost a lot. It's a very ambitious mission, but it was supposed to enter the atmosphere, slowly parachute itself down, deploy some airbags to get itself safely onto the surface of Mars. From then, it would kind of open up a bit like a pocket watch, unfurl some solar panels and start doing science, trying to work out in part, which is the main reason we go to Mars, to find out if it has the conditions for life or if it had the conditions for life in the past. And then 20 years ago, uh, yeah, we're all geared up for Christmas. All the astronauts, everyone, the scientists are very excited about it finally landing. It's going to make contact. And then, Ed, what happens? Yeah, so it was Christmas Day, actually. So everyone's getting very, very excited on Christmas Day. But scientists, instead of being at home with their families, were at various places around the country waiting for the first signal back from Beagle 2. And it never came. Unfortunately, they waited and they waited and they waited. But I think about two months went by and they finally said something's happened to Beagle 2. Officially, we've got to call it there. The mission was a failure as far as we were aware. Wow. And then what's happened since? So in the last 20 years, how much do we know about Beagle 2? What happened to it? Why it wasn't able to make contact with it? Have we got any idea, Ed? So the main issue with Beagle 2 is the fact that it couldn't send back any data and 2015 is when uh, we had some insight into what happened because another one of uh, NASA's missions out to Mars called the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter takes very, very good pictures of the surface and it spotted this glint of, or actually a couple of glints of light on the surface. Something was on the surface reflecting sunlight. And so scientists from NASA and also from like the University of Leicester and the original Beagle 2 team were looking at these images and they spotted something that they thought was very, very recognisable as Beagle, not only Beagle 2, but also things like the parachutes that took it down to the surface, possibly even airbags that had deployed. Back in 2003, 20 years ago, we didn't even know if it landed. One of the options was that it just went back into deep space and it was currently orbiting the sun somewhere. But we saw it landed and not only landed, but started to deploy uh, itself and started to get ready to actually start performing science on the surface of Mars. So it was a massive relief that actually it was sort of a success, almost, almost a success, because what the solar panels did also show, uh, or the images showed that out of the four solar panels, only two or three actually deployed, and the solar panels were right on top of the communications array. 
So not only could Beagle 2 not get enough power, it also could not communicate with Earth. So even if it did any science at all, it would have run out of battery and any science couldn't be uh, transmitted back to Earth. One of the best things about science is we never take no for an answer. A mission might have failed, but it's an opportunity for us to learn, for us to see what's happened and grow and make things better. In the last 20 years of science and space exploration, what do you think that we've learned from Beagle 2 that has maybe helped us travel to Mars and do experiments there as we have been over the last couple of years? So Beagle 2 was actually massive, not only for the UK, but around the world. Uh, as I said, Beagle 2 was very light and that required so much more engineering and increasing our technological understanding of scientific equipment to miniaturize this scientific equipment, which has then been used on other space missions. It was also massive for the team that worked on Beagle 2, both at the Open University, which is what Colin Pillinger was part of, but also here at the University of Leicester, which was a massive team here, also helped out. And Colin Pillinger went on to really push for a lander as part of the Rosetta mission, which went to a comet. He called it the Philae lander. And it also landed. It was the first ever landing on a comet. So Beagle 2, some of the legacy of Beagle 2, landed the first ever mission onto a comet. It's also been massive for really pushing scientific involvement in the UK. I'm quite happy to say that part of the reason I'm sat here with you right now on this call is because of Beagle 2, because of the influence that it had in the UK. I remember coming here to the National Space Centre a long, long time ago now, almost 20 years ago now, I came to the National Space Centre. I walked around and we had things about Beagle 2 here. I remember specifically there was a part of it was trying to work out what do you think happened to Beagle 2? And my mum always says, I thought a big dinosaur ate it. So that's a possibility. We don't know. <laughs> Maybe that happened. Unlikely, though. So it has been massive to really influence science in the UK. And hopefully at some point in the future, the UK will be returning to Mars with a rover. But that's not for many, many years now. But it's all part of that influence as well as increasing our scientific understanding. You've written a brilliant article about this, Ed, which you can see now if you head to spacecentre.co.uk, poke around, you can find it there. Uh, many reasons go and look at that. One of them is because you can see a picture of Colin Pillinger, who we've talked about. He was a scientist at the Open University, one of the main reasons that Beagle 2 uh, was an uh, attempt and a mission. And the brilliant thing about Colin, he looks exactly like you would think a space scientist to look. Uh, it's, it's fantastic. So go and check that out. Uh, Ed, thank you so much for joining us. No worries. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you have anything sciencey that you want answered, please do leave it as a voice note for me. Send it over to the free Fun Kids app or you can do it at funkidslive.com too. You can hear loads of our brilliant podcast series. You've heard a few today. We've got tons more wherever you get your shows, Google, Apple, Spotify, that kind of thing. You get even more bonus exclusive episodes by subscribing to Fun Kids Podcast Plus and Fun Kids through our children's radio station from the UK. Listen all around the country on the free Fun Kids app over at funkidslive.com best ways if you've got a smart speaker wake it up and ask it to play fun kids 
Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading!